Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. One of the things that really can irritate me, not a, a whole lot, this thing really to me, that's going to the airport and catching a flight. Especially uh, several years ago, but... Uh, I don't fly as much as I used to, but I hate going to the airport because it's a hurry up and wait. Hurry up to get there. You know, it's like you've got to be there two hours early so you can go through the the, the, the security thing and they can check you. For some reason or other, they think I'm a terrorist. So they always pull me out and have to examine me a little bit closer. You know, I want to say because I'm a fine physical specimen, but I know that's not it. Uh, so, you know, so... And so you go through and you get your shoes and you get everything and you, and you make it to your gate and you sit there and you have to wait. You have to wait a little bit longer. And then finally you get to board your plane and, 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 you, and you board your plane and then you sit in your seat and you wait. And you wait. And, you wait. and finally they, can, they taxi away from the little uh, uh, the, the, the entry to the gate and then they go, they go out there and you wait in line to be the next one to take off. It seems like all you're doing is hurrying up the way. And so you finally make it to your destination. Now, if you have a connecting flight, you're in trouble. Because you'll get to your connecting flight, find out that the flight you need to pick up is all on the other side of the terminal, and you've got three minutes to get there. Okay? And so you run, 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 run to get there. Then you're pulling your luggage behind you. You're sweating. You're out of breath. And you get there and say, oh, I'm sorry. That flight has already taken off. And so what do you have to do? You have to wait a little longer. A little longer. Hurry up and wait. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how the New Testament writers talk about the second coming of Jesus, but it's kind of like hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. You see, the, the writers of the New Testament, they believe that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. They believe in the imminent return of Christ. He'd come at any moment, and they thought he was going to come in their lifetime. So that's what we know. Now, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came the first time. He didn't come during their lifetime. And He has not come in our lifetime yet. He has not come. But, so the question we want to ask ourselves, why hasn't Jesus come? Why hasn't Jesus returned? That's the question we want to ponder this morning as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, Verses 1 through 9. We'll look at these words this morning under the heading, Why Hasn't Jesus Returned? You follow along your copy of God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment 
and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus returned? Before we answer that question, I want you to see, understand some things revealed in this passage. First thing you need to know is that His coming is declared. It's, it's clear in the Bible that Jesus is going to come. Uh, in verse 2, we see that Peter says, hey look, the prophets announced this. The prophets talked about this coming of Jesus. Isaiah and the other prophets prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Matter of fact, to the, the writers of the Old Testament, from, from Isaiah to, to, to Malachi, the first of the prophets and the last of the prophets, they wrote of the first coming and the second coming, but they almost saw them as a simultaneous event. They saw them happening instantaneously. And so because of that, it led to a little bit of confusion, and so it, it, they had a hard time understanding it, but they all prophesied about the second coming of Jesus. But what we have to understand, from Isaiah to Malachi, most of the time you talk about the second coming of Jesus, it's tied to the day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. That's when Jesus will come. But they prophesied about this. All the way from Isaiah to Malachi, the first of the prophets to the last of the prophets, they talked about this day of judgment, about this time that Jesus would come again, that the Messiah would come again. But Peter not only said that the prophets announced this, the prophets declared it, but he said the apostles declared it. We know that John said in 1 John 2.28, And now, dear children, continue in Him, he's talking about Jesus, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.7, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So the Old Testament prophets declared it. The apostles declared it. But Jesus himself declared it. As a matter of fact, it's even mentioned in this passage. Look at verse 4. It says, where is this coming? He promised that he is Jesus. Where is this coming that Jesus promised? You know, he's going to do what he promised he would do. He's already done so much. Jesus said He would come and take away our sins. He did it. Jesus said He would die on the cross. He did it. Jesus said He'd be raised from the dead. He did it. Jesus said, I will come again to take you to be with me. We can count on it. He's going to do it. Jesus is going to do what He said He's going to do. I'm reminded of a little boy who took a trip and he shows up at the bus station at night, or he shows up at the bus station, he's waiting for his dad to come pick him up at the bus station. And it's getting late. And so the, the man in the bus station begins turning off the lights, and he notices the little boy sitting there in, in, the, in the chair. And he says, son, is, are you sure your father is going to come and get you? And the little boy said, yes, I know my daddy's going to come and get me. He promised he'd come and get me, and my daddy always keeps his word. Listen, my friends, Jesus will keep his word. He said He's coming back. He is coming back. That's something that we can glean from this passage. He always keeps His word. So His, his coming is declared. It's predicted. It's prophesied. But not only is coming declared, we look on and see we need to know that His coming will be denied. Look at verse 3. 
Verse 3 says there will be scoffers in that day. What do scoffers do? They scoff. He says there will be scoffers will come scoffing and following. So that, that's what to do. What is a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who makes light of what should be taken seriously. That's like somebody, I, I believe the Baylor Bears are 7-6 this year. I think they're going to go 9-3 and three next year, you scoffers. <laughs> scoffers, that's what a scoffer is. They make fun, they ridicule, lie of something that should be taken seriously. Now these are not uneducated people. Uh, these are highly intelligent people. You can almost hear the sneer in the voice. They said, yeah, where's this coming that he promised? You Christians, you're always talking about this second coming stuff. Where is it? Where's he at? He's not coming. But the Bible predicted that in those days there will be scoffers. In the days when Jesus comes, there's going to be scoffers. So every time you encounter a scoffer, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a prediction that the coming of Jesus is closer. Because that's what the Bible says. So the scoffers will deny the second coming. Why do they do that? Why do scoffers deny the second coming? There's two reasons that I can find in this passage. First, they do it because of their own sinful desires. Look at verse, uh, verse 3. They will say, where is his coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on. Oh, I'm sorry. Look at verse 3. I'm looking at verse 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So they would deny the second coming. Why? To satisfy their evil desires. Now think about it. Stay with me on this. If there is a second coming of Jesus, that means there is a judgment. If there is no second coming of Jesus, there is no judgment, then you can live however you want to live. That's how they play this out. They deny that Jesus is coming, therefore they deny the second coming. That gives them permission to live any way they want to live. But if there is a second coming, then there is a judgment. So that means you must be ready. You must give an account for the way you live your life. So the first reason is because they want to satisfy their own simple desires. The second reason is for intellectual reasons. Now look at verse 4. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Basically, here's what they're saying. Nothing's changed. Everything is the same as it was when our fathers lived. Everything, nothing changes. Everything is exactly like it has been. Their logic is this. That he hasn't come, therefore he's not going to come. That's stupid. It's faulty logic. That's like me saying, I have never broken my leg, therefore I will never break my leg. They're saying that because something hasn't happened in the past, it's not going to happen in the future. But that's what they're trying to say. Everything's going just like it is. There are some who believe that. There are some who believe that the world is just continuing just as the way it always was. There's an intellectual view of the whole universe known as the doctrine of uniformitarianism. That's a big word. I had to look it up. Uniformitarianism. Uh, basically, what it says is the key to the present is the past. If you want to know how things will go to the present, look to the past. And, and everything's going to continue as it's always went on. 
Everything is exactly as it's always been. They believe we live in a closed universe, that nothing new happens in the universe. They say the universe came into existence, and if there was a God who created the universe, God then walked away and left the universe to itself. This is what they're, uh, that they're trying to say. Uh, now we live in a closed system that everything operates in the laws of nature and nothing ever changes. Miracles do not happen. Miracles do not occur. God does not intervene in this world in which we live. Things take place in the natural world. That's the view of many people today. Many people hold that view. But we know that miracles do occur. We know that God has intervened in the world, and we know that He can do it again. We know He intervened 2,000 years ago when He came with a tiny baby named Jesus. We know that He intervened when He went to the cross and died for sinful humanity. We know that He intervened again when He raised Jesus from the dead. So we know that God intervenes in the course of human nature, in the course of the universe. Humanly speaking, that couldn't happen. But divinely speaking, by the power of God, it did happen. And God did intervene in this world in which we live. But these scoffers, they deny for intellectual reasons. They don't believe it can happen. And it's important for us to understand this. This is what's going on in the culture around us. That's the reason we have this basis for the lack of moral standards. Listen... If Jesus is not coming, we can do whatever we want. If God's not involved, we can do whatever we want. That's why we see this going on. They want to walk according to their own standards. They want to be their own God. Listen to the words of one of the, the premier atheists in the middle part of the 20th century. His name was Aldous Huxley. This is what he said. He said, I have motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For me, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Did you hear what he said? He said, I had a reason not to believe that there was a creator God. I had to get rid of God so that I could live the way I wanted to live and not be afraid I was going to have to be accountable to some God. That's their whole philosophy. That's their whole idea. They're denying a creator, what? So they can indulge in their sinful desires. A scoffer. Listen, every time you find a scoffer, somebody that's denying the second coming, you know what else you find? You find a sinner. Scoffers and sinners, it's the same coin. Different sides of the same coin. One side is scoffer, on the other side, it's a sinner. They have intellectual difficulties about the belief in the existence of God. Why? So they can indulge their sinful behavior. It all comes out because they were living a moral life. That's why it comes out. So we see in the passage that His coming is declared, His, his coming will be denied. Look at this. His coming can be defended. His coming can be defended. You need to know that His coming can be defended. In verses 5 and following, we have the reasons that Jesus has not come. Uh, 
we have also have the reasons that people should receive Jesus as their personal Savior. So what he's going to do, he's going to give us two historical illustrations, and then he's going to give us a theological statement, or a theological value that we need to hang on to. Let's look at first the historical reason. Look at verse 5. But they deliberately forget. That's key. You might want to underline it. You might want to highlight it. But they deliberately forget. He said they make a choice not to believe. This is something they deliberately choose not to believe. This is the battle we have going on today in what we call uh, creationism and evolution. This is one of the battles going on in, in, in school districts and in, in, in the halls of Congress, wherever. Now, can you teach creationism in school or do you have to teach evolution in, in school? Yeah, we're talking about intelligent design and evolution. And the thing that I find really interesting about this whole argument is that those people who say that, that they are, uh, uh, what's the word for that they are uh, open-minded, they're the very ones that don't want intelligent design taught in the school. Why? But I did read something the other day, and I'm so proud of our kids. I don't know if our kids are in this category, but uh, a, a Gallup poll said that 85% of students in our schools believe there is an intellectual designer behind the creation. Praise God for our students. They know more than the intellects. They know more than the teachers. This is one of the problems that's going on in the world. Look at verse 5. He said, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. What's he talking about? He's talking about the creation. He's talking about how God intervened in this thing we call the world. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And we know as we continue reading in, in Genesis that God spoke and he separated the waters from the heavens and the waters from the earth and in between he created an expanse. God did it. He did it by the word of God. If you go back and look at Genesis 1, go back and examine how many times it says God said, God said, God said, or God spoke, God spoke. I know what you're asking. Well, how do you do it? How many days did it take to do it? How, how long did it take? Well, it says God spoke. God does not study. So the minute God spoke, it happened. It happened. It happened in an instant. The Bible says it was a day. It happened when God spoke. And that it didn't take 10,000 years for it to happen. Verse 6 Look at what he says. He begins to talk about the flood. By these waters, he's talking about the waters that form the earth. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about the situation. Do you know there were scoffers in the day that Noah lived? They scoffed. Noah was sitting there building the ark. And while he's building the ark, he's preaching the gospel. Every nail he drove in was a, was a sermon. Every nail he drove in. He was just preaching to God and telling people to repent. Hey, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. It's never flooded before, so it's not going to flood. It's never rained before, so it's not going to rain. But then one day, you know what happened? There was a little drop that came down and hit somebody around the head. They said, what's that? Noah said, rain. And what happened? 
They went in, they went in, Noah and the seven went in with him, and the door closed the door, and everyone else was destroyed. Why? Because God intervened in history to cause something to happen. God intervened. But these people deliberately choose to forget that. And there is geological evidence to support the flood. All you got to do is look. It's out there. If you want to find it, it's there. There's geological evidence to support that. And you mark it down. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But you mark it down. One day, science is finally going to catch up with the Bible. And when it catches up with the Bible, they're going to say, wow, the Bible had it right all along. The only reason we don't know, we can't back it up with the Bible, why? because God has not given us enough knowledge to confirm it. But someday, we'll know it. And then we'll say, God was right all along. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. Remember the context. What's going on here? People deliberately choose to not believe that God intervenes in history. And Peter says he intervened in creation. He intervened in the flood. And there's going to be a future day, is what Peter says in verse 7. There's going to be a future day that God's going to intervene again. And it's all going to be destroyed by fire. We'll pick up on that story next week. That's a little advertisement for next week. You want to know what's going to happen? You got to be here next week. Pick it up in verse 10. Let's go on. Now he's going to give us a little theology. Look at verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. You used to always hear the joke. Guy pray, Lord, can I borrow a million dollars? He goes, one day. One day. You'll catch that when you go home. <laughs> There's been a lot of people that have misinterpreted a lot of scripture based on this passage. What you have to understand, God is using a, a language of Peter's using a language of comparison in this passage. It's a figure of speech, is what he's using. What Peter is saying is that God is not limited by time. He is eternal. He's not restricted by, by time. God looks at the world and sees everything as one event. Everything happens simultaneously. In fact, some people say that God stands in the future and looks backwards. He's not restrained by time. Nothing impacts him. When, uh, he's not restricted by time. He, he's above time. Did you know there are no clocks and no calendars in heaven? God doesn't wake up anymore. Oh, sun rises. It must be another day. And pull that clock. You know, he, doesn't, you know, he doesn't have an iPhone that he can look at and say, you know, what's the weather going to be like? You know, I am the weather. He doesn't look at us and say, you know, I am the one that makes it shine. None of that's in there. He doesn't have that. Listen, God is never late. He's always on time. Exactly when He's supposed to be there. He says, it's been 2,000 years. Now, it's been 2,000 years since, since Jesus said this, since Jesus said this, but for God, it's, eh, it's a couple days. It's a couple days. Not that big a deal to Him. When He says it's, it's, it's a thousand years, He's talking about it from our perspective, not from God's perspective. He's giving us, this is what it looks like to you, but it doesn't look that way to God. God has no restrictions on time. None whatsoever when it comes to him. That leads us back to our original question. Okay, why hasn't Jesus returned? 
Why is he turned? Verse 9. I love this verse. Look at it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What's the promise? His promise of coming. He's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not due to the slowness of God. The reason Jesus hasn't come yet is not because it's slow. It's because of his goodness. It's because of his goodness. He's wanting to give people an opportunity to respond to him. He's wanting to give people a chance to turn to him. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says it this way. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You know what God's will is? That none should be perish. That none should be lost. That makes him happy. So if that's God's will, if that's God's purpose, then the problem is not with God's will. Because it's God's will that people be saved. The problem must be with man's will. That must be what the problem is. And we have to understand that. Listen. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, if you do not know Him as your personal Lord, as your Savior, God has given you time. He's given you time to repent. He's given you time to believe in Him. He's given you opportunity. Not because He's slow, but because He's good and He's gracious and He's kind. And He's given you an opportunity to come to Him. Look at what He says in this passage. The very last part, He says, but everyone to come to repentance. He says, come to repentance. That word come is an interesting word. It literally means to make room for. So, but everyone to make room for repentance. What he's saying? You see the guy get rid of pride? You got to get rid of your self-sufficiency. You got to get rid of your arrogance and think you can do it by yourself. I don't need God. I can, I can do this on my own. He said, you got to get rid of that. And you have to make room for repentance. And he's saying that, that if you admit that you are a sinner, and you admit that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you, and you would believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and you will commit your life to Him, he says, then, then, you will be able to escape the wrath of God, and you will experience forgiveness. If you will repent and make room for forgiveness in your heart. That's what he's saying in this passage. Admit that you are a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ and commit your life to Him. So the days tick by. Jesus tarries. He waits to give you another opportunity to respond. We'll look a little bit more at this next week. Giving us a little bit more time for people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Time for you to respond to what you've heard. I can't tell you what to do. I can just make an opportunity for you to respond. Maybe there is someone here that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior life. Look, the Bible is clear. He's coming. The question is, are you ready for His coming? If He was to come today, whether He comes in a miraculous uh, 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 
miraculous, glorious event, or He comes to personally take you through a tragedy. The question is, are you ready to meet Him today? You can be. If you admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ and commit your life to Him. In a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Praise Him for come and lead us in a closing song. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. As I lead us in a time of prayer, ask you to examine your own heart while you're here this morning. Father, we come before you this morning admitting it, Lord, that we don't know everything. We don't know when you're going to come. Lord, we sometimes don't know why you haven't come, but Lord, we read your word and we understand, Father, it's because you want people to be saved. You want people, Lord, to have a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and, and Father, a fiftieth chance. Father, you're not slow. As we think of slowness, God, you're gracious, you're kind, and you're good. I pray, Father, you'll reach down this morning and touch our hearts. I pray, Father, that you convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us, God, where we need to be challenged. Father, move us in the direction we need to be moved. God, we're praying for your will to be done this morning in this place. Speak to our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name I pray.